One is a classic German film that has inspired countless science fiction stories to date. The other, an anime adaptation with equal parts action and noir sprinkled throughout. Metropolis. They remade it. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of They Remade It. I'm your host, Stuart. And I'm your host, Jacob. We return once again from inside of our quarantine bunkers slash apartments slash... I don't know where the fuck we live anymore, honestly. <laughs> back from the brink. I mean, can you call this living? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm doing just fine, honestly. All my, work, mean, yeah. all my workmates and everything on the group chat are being like, Oh, this sucks. And I'm just like, y'all are the weirdest extroverts. I'm having a blast. <laughs> I, yeah, I have not a lot of coworkers, but I have more coworkers than I thought that are just jonesing to get back into the office. I'm like, mm. eh, I could do without it. There's definitely cons to working from home. Don't get me wrong. I've been struggling with it for the past month, but right. it's, not all, it's not all bad. Yeah. I have, you know, got some time to just kind of relax. It's nice to be able to take a nap in the middle of the workday. Right. And it's nice to be able to, you know, turn on my home laptop and sit it next to my work laptop and just stream things to watch while I work. Because I can multitask fairly efficiently. I cannot. My workload has suffered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying it's, it has not been easier for working at the very least. No, I, yeah, I get it. <laughs> oh, I understand. But on that note, on the subject of streaming, what you've been watching? Ooh, okay. Um, so, actually, you know what? Uh, since it's currently my turn to talk, I'm going. I will talk about what I've been watching, but also uh, two points of business. Okay, uh, go right ahead. One that's fairly recent. One that I keep forgetting to touch on. Um, for anyone that's curious or cares, ever since the Beauty and the Beast episode, I have started putting the timestamps for the plot synopsis, plot synopses, in the description of the the show notes just for anyone that cares because sometimes some of these can get complex and I, I don't want to cut the plot synopsis out entirely because then like if people haven't seen it, they don't know what we're talking about. So I want to keep that in. Yeah. But I also want an out for people that maybe don't want to listen to it. Mm. So, or if you just want to skip over our nonsense at the beginning and get to the meat of things. Oh, exactly. Yeah. If you just want to get into, you know, the point of it, because sometimes these will go on for like 20 minutes. 20 to 30 minutes these openers as always we are old geriatric men in 20 year old bodies yes and i'm not removing a thing you'll have to fight me <laughs> editors are for chumps <laughs> um the other note is uh so uh in addition to watching honestly very few professional things i've been watching a lot of youtube stuff just random YouTube videos like, oh, this isn't recommended. Oh, it's a compilation of whatever. So ah. that's mostly just what I've been having going on. I couldn't even tell you what it is because it's so all over the place. Mm -hmm. uh, but also just podcasts as soon as they come out, which I was doing the same at work. But now since I'm not audibly talking to a lot of people like I was in the office, it's more so like IMs or emails. Mm -hmm. 
I don't have to pause all the time and I've gone through more. So I've picked up other episodes, blah, blah, blah. And uh, one of the things I wanted to mention, because we have now talked about him on this show twice this year, uh, once when I brought up watching Muppets from Space earlier in the year, and then once last time when we were talking about Hellboy, um, the most recent episode as of this recording of Gilbert Gottfried's interview podcast was with Jeffrey Tambor. Mm. And... uh, I mean, if you want to check that out, if you're at all interested in that man, I would say give that a listen. Uh, I have definitely been very harsh on him for things he has said and done and uh, (laughs) the way he has allegedly treated people on set. And I'm not taking any of that back, nor should anybody else, just because you don't behave that way as a person. Yeah. Um, But listening to – in addition, listening to that show, you can really hear – his anxieties, the way he thinks, his methods, and he actually, he doesn't shy away from talking about his problems on shows and his controversies. He actually does go into it as well. So, as I said, that's that's not saying that, oh, everything is forgiven, everything's done, but it is still interesting to listen to him talk about it and just the way he converses about his life and his history. So I, I would I would recommend that episode if you don't listen to that podcast. Um, it's also one of the stranger ones because I would say for 20% of it, Gilbert and Jeffrey are just literally telling each other to fuck themselves. <laughs> uh, Already? Literally. <laughs> um, so, uh, with those two things out of the way, uh, like I said, just a bunch of random YouTube stuff. So I definitely slacked in the, what I can actually talk about department, but I, I did watch two notable things I would say. Okay. Um, the first one, I did hop on the bandwagon this time on with the Netflix bandwagon, I did watch uh, the Tiger King docu-series. I watched oh, yeah. it all in the span of a day. Um, Guy's a piece of shit. Uh, he is. Uh, <laughs> like, unmitigated. <laughs> a lot of the internet likes to hide that, though. They're caught up on uh, one particular character in the show, and they're ignoring the 50 other characters that are all equally as awful and terrible and doing illegal things. Yeah. Um. Like, it is, it's kind of almost gratifying to see, like, so often you see, like, docuseries and everything where it's like, oh, it's a complex issue. Everyone is kind of right in their own way. In this case, it's the exact opposite. It's like, this is not a complex issue at all. Literally every single person in here is a megalomaniac fucking asshole. (laughs) Yeah, they're all, they're all psychotic. They're doing illegal stuff. They're running harems and abusing animals, and it's awful. Yeah. Just terrible terrible people um and but my, that made it more compelling <laughs> yeah and, and it firmly you know reinforces my thought that the portion of certain portions of the midwest along like oklahoma and Te- upper texas and everything are akin to a circle of hell so yes uh they are they are a uh ask scrap that joke i can't think of the word um so... <laughs> <laughs> moving right along yes I... <laughs> it's ruined Fuck it, we're not doing it live. I will edit it in post. Um, uh, there's for chumps. So, um, the other thing I watched, uh, I, I say notable just because it's professional, but it's also not one of the least notable things Disney has done. As a part of my Disney whatever-a-thon for the year, I watched uh, Saludos Amigos, which oh. uh, I had never seen before. I had seen segments of it with all of those 
uh, old Disney anthology movies where just a bunch of different skits happen. Sometimes you'll see portions of the skits. Yeah. Because um, they're easily segmentable, segmented, and it doesn't affect viewing the rest of the film. But like I said, I had never seen it fully before. I had no idea how short it was. It's the shortest Disney animated, Walt Disney animated feature at uh, 42 minutes. Oh, wow. So, I, was about, I was about to say, is that including the one Winnie the Pooh movie we did? Because that one was like an hour. Yeah, Winnie the Pooh is like an hour and six minutes. Dumbo is like an hour and four minutes. And then this was 40 minutes. So Man, they really, People go on like, it. God, film times were all over the which way back in the day. Although I oh, say that definitely. the Winnie the Pooh movie came out in like 2010. Oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot about that one. I don't know the runtime of that one, but it was also short, too. The one that came in 77 was an hour and like an hour and six minutes. I think but, that uh, I think that 2010 one was around the same. I can see it. It was it had less shorts, too. It just drugged them out longer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I also watched that. I don't know that there's a whole lot to say about it. It's mostly Walt Disney and his animators went to South America. They all went to different portions of South America and they wrote it off as a business expense by making a movie about it, pretty much. So fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Uh, what about you? <laughs> uh, haven't watched a whole lot either, but I have technically three things that I'll make a note. First one I watched was The Outlaw King, which is similar to The King that I had seen beforehand with Timothy Chalamet, which that one was kind of eh, um, mostly because the history was all over the which way. Um, but Outlaw King I actually really enjoyed as Chris Pine is about uh, Robert the Bruce of like what it basically it's like you know Braveheart and you know how like horribly inaccurate it is I I've heard tell <laughs> Yeah this I mean, is I've seen the movie I just don't have the history knowledge to confirm that it's inaccurate but I I believe it Oh yeah it's super fucking accurate like one of the first goddamn lines is inaccurate it gets the year of a king's death wrong It's like <laughs> how do you screw that up <laughs> That movie Entire... won an Oscar for best picture fucking hate mel gibson um <laughs> but outlaw king is basically in a way a response to that it's about the it's about the same portion of time it's just after the end of braveheart um because william wallace is dead spoiler alert um oh no but but yeah it's about this guy robert the bruce who attempts to unite who more or less unites scotland against you know the then invading england because they always fucking invade um so i liked it i liked it a lot uh not a whole lot not a whole lot to say about it it's a you know historical movie i'm just a nerd for that shit and it's about scotland which you know is me homeland by the fucking my first name as you might be able to fucking guess um um after that i watched uh the castlevania series on netflix because I was like, I don't fucking... I've never played a Castlevania game. I'm not that into anime. And Tumblr only ever talks about shipping the characters on here. I'm bored and slightly drunk. Let's do this. And so I binged the all three seasons and was like equal parts elated and horrified by the events. Because like, it's a violent show. <laughs> it's um, good, isn't it? It's awesome. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's like... Cause like I and I because the third season ends off with, without me, which that was thing just spoiled too much. It ends off with people in kind of a crap position. They're not in danger. It's just that everything kind of sucks, 
And so <laughs> I feel really bad for them and everything. I'm like, and I know it takes forever for these seasons to come out because it's gloriously animated. Um, just you know, it's got a, and it's got a pretty cool cast as well. It's got Richard Armitage as um, you know Trevor Belmont, and you know it's the kind of thing where I want to play the games now. But on the other hand, I'm like, it's not going to be anything like this, you know. No, at least not any of the ones that I've played. Yeah, and it's but, like, yeah, it's just, and I just really enjoyed it because it's just so often is doing the things that so many other shows just straight up avoid doing. Like it makes the characters genuinely love each other that are working together for the same goals it gives male characters a lot of depth and like joy and emotions and everything gives female characters a lot of actual agency in the story and you know there are scenes where it's like oh i really hope they do it'd be kind of cool if they did this sort of thing but i doubt they will and then they straight up just do it it's like oh cool like at one point that's just like i like oh it'd be really cool if like uh, like if this dude, like I don't know, dual wielded his like two weapons he's gained on this, but I doubt they'll do it. And they fucking do it, and it's glorious. It's like, oh my god, I'm in love. <laughs> so it's it, it's yeah, I, I, it took me for a ride. I was not, I was very surprised. <laughs> That's good. I'm ha- I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I yeah. I uh, I'm in a similar boat with anime, not for the same mm-hmm. reasons. I don't watch a lot of it because there's so much of it, and I'm, I just look at some of the spans that they have or the length or the amount of episodes i'm like i can't possibly do that so yeah if there is a manga adaptation i read it and i read a large amount of manga uh Mm. but every now and then there isn't an option for that and i will watch the anime and castlevania was one of those like two years actually you said three seasons i don't think that i've seen season three oh yeah uh, I, I do remember watching the other two and enjoying it, so. Yeah, third season you'll probably love. Okay, perfect. <laughs> yeah, get, get on that one. I, I will have to for next time. That one in Hellboy 2, I uh, gotta get on that. Oh, yeah. I was supposed to watch it this time, my disc wasn't working, blah, 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 so. Yeah, it's, it's fine. I just gave up. Anyways. Uh, but yeah, then the third one, not tech, not a, a movie or a series, but I'm counting it because it's very cinematic. Uh, I played uh, Uncharted 4. Because it was free on PlayStation. Um, and I count it because it's basically just like playing an Indiana Jones movie. Um, right. And, you know, it was also just kind of a big highlight for me because I've been a huge fan of the series for a long time. And I had never gotten a chance to play the fourth one, which is the final main one. They've had another one, like a spinoff game since then. But I, I played that one as well. It was pretty fun. Um, but... You know, this was kind of wrapped up the main story, and I was like, "This is nice." It was about pirates and shit, and I was like, "This is fucking awesome." I, I, uh, there's no part of this that I did that I, that I dislike. <laughs> Sweet. And so I just, and so I just wanted to talk about it. <laughs> awesome. I need to, I need to get on that. I own all four now because uh, the Uncharted trilogy was free on PS Plus some months ago, and then four was free last month, or yeah, last month. So now I have all of them, but yep. I haven't played any. I mean, that's not entirely true. I played, like, two hours of a physical copy of 4 when I used mm-hmm. to live uh, with some mutual friends of ours. Yeah. Because it was it was his copy. Um, but but the series as a whole, I have not touched. But, I mean, I have them all now. I have the excuse, so I should do that, too. Yeah. I loved them. I personally think the second one of the original trilogy, the second one's the highlight. third one kind of ends on a squib. But, yeah, I still think it's pretty good. And the fourth one, I think, was, like, I was not expecting it to do. It's like it's like the 
pinnacle of the whole series just with the amount that they put into it. So I well, liked it a lot. And, you know, it's, it's fucking Naughty Dog, and they're, you know, PlayStation All-Stars at this point, so. Right. And it has Crash yeah. Bandicoot. What what more could you want? Yeah, exactly. And he controls very strangely. Um, yeah, that was weird. But, yeah, that, uh, <laughs> that about sums it up. My one movie in our my one my 33% movie in our 100% movie show so we're doing fine we're we're good we're good i talked about a podcast for like 5 minutes and so fair enough <laughs> <laughs> we're all right but uh i think that'll I think that'll lead us in nicely to the meat of things i always call yeah. it the meat of things i got to start calling it something else like i'm going to start calling it the tofu of things to help out with the vegans Oh, yes, uh, that's very marketable right now. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to avoid saying wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey, and I'm saying wakey, wakey, vegetables and sadness. Uh, that works. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's pretty accurate. <laughs> I'm going to allow this, but you know what, as well as, it, you know, if we're going to appeal to the vegans, let's, let's just appeal to that entire class, and uh, let's begin talking about some films that involve rising up against uh, those... That have more than you. If you're implying that vegans are revolutionaries, I'm going to punch you in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking Metropolis today, and they remade it. Starting off with 1927's Metropolis. <clears throat> in the future, the year of 2030, in the million-acre city of Metropolis, wealthy industrialists and business magnates and their top employees reign from 50 to 1,000-story skyscrapers, while underground-dwelling workers toil to operate the great machines that power the city. Joe Frederson, by the way, this is German, and the other one is anime from Japan, so if I mispronounce names, oopsie. I took one year of German. I might be able to correct a couple. Okay, <laughs> let's let's work on that. Let's put all of our our eggs in that basket, <clears throat> and then blow up the basket. Joe Frederson is the city's master. His son Freder isles away his time at sports and in a pleasure garden, but is interrupted one day by the arrival of a young woman named Maria, who has brought a group of workers' children to witness the lifestyle of their rich brothers. Maria and the children are ushered away soon, but Freder, fascinated fascinated, goes to the lower levels to find her. On the machine levels, he witnesses the explosion of a huge machine that kills and injures numerous workers. Freder has a hallucination that the machine is a temple of Moloch, and the workers are being fed to it. When the hallucination ends and he sees the dead workers being carried away on stretchers, he hurries to tell his father about the accident. 
Frederson asks his assistant, Josephette, why he learned of the explosion from his son and not from him. Grot, foreman of the heart machine, brings Frederson secret maps he found on the dead workers. Frederson again asks Josephette why he did not learn the maps from him and fires him on the spot. After seeing his father's cold indifference towards the harsh conditions they face, Frederson secretly rebels against him by deciding to help the workers. He enlists Josephette's assistance and returns to the machine halls where he trades places with a worker. Frederson takes the maps to the inventor Rotwang and to learn their meeting. Rotwang has been in love with a woman named Hell who left him to marry Frederson and later died, giving birth to Fredder. Rotwang shows Frederson a robot he has built to resurrect Hell. The maps show a network of catacombs beneath Metropolis and the two men go to investigate. Also, I don't know if you'll care or not, um, and considering you've already said the name a few times, but I think it's Rotvang. Vang? Oh, it's a, like Wagner. Shit. Yeah, because okay. yeah, with German, the W is pronounced like a V. They eavesdrop on a gathering of workers, including Freder. Maria addresses them, prophesying, prophesying the arrival of a mediator who can bring the working and ruling classes together. Freder believes he could fill the role and declares his love for Maria. Frederson orders Rotvang to give Maria's likeness to the robot so that it can ruin her reputation among the workers to prevent any rebellion. Frederson is unaware that Rotvang plans to use the robot to kill Freder and take over Metropolis. Rotvang kidnaps Maria, transfers her likeness to the robot, and sends her to Frederson. Freder finds the two embracing and, believing it is the real Maria, falls into a prolonged delirium. Intercut with his hallucinations, the false Maria unleashes chaos throughout Metropolis, driving men to murder and stirring dissent among the workers. Freder recovers and returns to the catacombs. Finding the false Maria urging the workers to rise up and destroy the machines, Freder accuses her of not being the real Maria. The workers follow the false Maria from the city to the machine rooms, leaving their children behind, destroying the heart machine, which then causes the worker city below to flood. The real Maria, having escaped from Rotvang's house, rescues the... <clears throat> Let me take that again. <clears throat> the real Maria, having escaped from Rotvang's house, re rescues the children with Freder's and Josephette's help. Grot berates the celebrating workers for abandoning their children in the flooded city. Believing their children to be dead, the hysterical workers capture the false Maria and burn her at the stake. A horrified freighter watches, not understanding the deception until the fire reveals her to be a robot. Rotvang is delusional, seeing the real Maria as his lost hell, and chases her to the roof of the cathedral, pursued by freighter. The two men fight as Freiderson and the workers watch from the street. Rotvang falls to his death. Freighter fulfills his role as mediator by linking the hands of Frederson and Grot to bring them together, and the movie comes to a close. <clears throat> and now we're moving on to the 2001 anime adaptation of Metropolis. In the futuristic city of Metropolis, humans and robots coexist, although robots are discriminated against and segregated to the city's lower levels. A lot of Metropolis's human population are unemployed and deprived, and many people blame the robots for taking their jobs. Duke Red, the unofficial ruler of Metropolis, has overseen the construction of a massive skyscraper called the Ziggurat, which he claims will allow mankind to extend its power across the planet. A wayward robot disrupts the Ziggurat's opening ceremony, only to be shot down by Rock, Duke Red's adopted son and the head of the Marduk Party, a vigilante group whose aim is to promote anti-robot sentiments. Private Detective Shunsaku Ban and his nephew Kenichi travel to Metropolis to arrest Dr. Lawton, a mad scientist wanted for organ trafficking. Unknown to Shinsaku, Duke Red has hired Lawton to build an advanced robot model then named after Red's deceased daughter, Tima. Red intends for Tima to function as a central control unit for a powerful secret weapon hidden in the Ziggurat. However, Rock learns of Tima's existence and, not wanting a robot to overshadow Red, shoots Lawton and sets fire to his laboratory. <clears throat> 
Shinsaku comes across the burning laboratory and discovers the dying Lawton, who gives Shinsaku his notebook. Meanwhile, Kenichi finds the activated Tima. The two fall into the sewers and are separated from Shinsaku. While Shinsaku searches for his nephew, Kenichi and Tima search for a way back to street level. They grow close as Kenichi teaches Tima how to speak English, or Japanese, or whatever you're, whatever you're listening to this in. Yeah, it's, it's interpretive. <laughs> Neither are aware she is a robot. The two are hunted relentlessly by Rock and his subordinates and encounter a group of unemployed human laborers who stage a revolution against Red. The president and the mayor of Metropolis try to use the revolution to overthrow Red and gain control of the city, but they are assassinated by the president's top military commander, General Kusai Skunk, who is sided with Red. The duke then imposes martial law to suppress the revolution. In the aftermath of the failed revolt, Kenichi reunites with Shinsaku only to be wounded by Rock, who reveals Tima to be a robot. Rock, however, is disowned by Red and stripped of his command of the Mardukes for attempting to kill Tima. Duke Red takes Tima away to the Ziggurat. Still determined to dispose of Tima and regain her father's affection, Rock kidnaps and deactivates Tima, who is now confused about her identity. Shinsaku rescues her and, after following instructions from Lawton's notebook, reactivates Tima. The two discover Kenichi is being held in the Ziggurat, but are then captured by Duke Red and the Mardukes on their way to save him. Brought to the top of the Ziggurat, Tima confronts Duke Red about whether she is a human or robot. Duke Red tells her she is a superhuman and destined to rule the world from her throne. Disguised as a maid, Rock then shoots Tima, exposing her circuitry. The sudden shock of realizing she is a robot causes Tima to go insane. She proceeds to sit on the throne where she orders a biological and nuclear attack on all of humanity. While the others flee, Kenichi tries to reason with Tima. Robots drawn by Tima's command attack Duke Red. These all happen within the span of mere minutes. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lot, people. Not wanting his father to die at the hands of the filthy robots, Rock kills himself and Duke Red in a massive explosion. As the ziggurat starts to collapse around them, Kenichi finally reaches Tima and separates her from the throne. Seemingly lost, Tima tries to kill Kenichi but falls off the tower in the struggle. Out of love for her, Kenichi tries to save Tima and pulls her up using one of the cables still grafted to her. As the cable begins to fray, Tima remembers the time Kenichi taught her language and asks Kenichi, Who am I? before she loses her grip and falls to her presumed death. The Ziggurat collapses, destroying a large part of the city. In the aftermath, Kenichi searches the ruins and discovers a group of robots have salvaged some of Tima's parts in an effort to rebuild her. While Shinsaku and many other human survivors are evacuated, Kenichi chooses to remain behind. He eventually rebuilds Tima and opens a robot workshop. How sweet. How wonderful. And all of that set to some wicked jazz. I love the soundtrack, but we will we'll talk about that, among other things. Oh, yes. Uh, as soon as I get through this full circle, baby. Woohoo! So, uh, this full circle this time around is actually a bit funny, considering we just did something like Hellboy to uh, American-made films among the library of countless U.S. productions that we've covered, and it only had two entries. Uh, yep. This one has three, because... This is not the first German film we've covered, and it's not the first anime we've covered. Yeah, that's that's still surprising. Yes. So uh, we have two. First for the 1927 Metropolis. First is Georges Jean, plays uh, the working man who ends up causing the explosion of the M machine. Uh, he was uncredited in that role. And he was a blind panhandler, or the blind panhandler, in 1931's M. Oh. I guess that makes sense. Yep, both German. <laughs> and both and both Fritz Lang. 
Yes, definitely. <laughs> and uh, speaking of, yeah, <laughs> Theodore Luce plays Josephat in Metropolis, a pretty large role, and was Inspector Gruber in 1931's M. So he was a that's... primary character in both both films. That's why I recognized him. <laughs> uh, and finally, for uh, the anime adaptation, we have Shigeru Shiba, who played Lamp in the 2001 Metropolis, and was Garbage Collector B in 1995's Ghost in the Shell. Oh, well, that's lovely. Also, can I just say, this isn't part of the full circle, but just looking at the IMD, IMDB, just with the names of these characters, it has a fucking three-hit combo where it has characters named Skunk, Lamp, and Ham Egg. So I want to ask for your thoughts on the movie, but do you mind if I go into a brief diatribe about those three characters specifically? I cannot remember specifically. <laughs> I know Skunk was like the guy who assassinated the president, but I can't remember who Lamp was. So Lamp, oh my god, this is so convoluted and interesting. Um, I'm glad I have some insight on this, but Lamp was alongside the president. He was actually the first one shot. Oh, yeah, that guy. And then Ham Egg, I remember, I don't remember his role, but I remember him in the film. He has like a wicked mustache and these big teeth, this huge grin. But um, hmm. Ham Egg, Lamp, and Skunk... Yeah, it's... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, No, I was just going to say, this is a fucking beautiful triple combo. Yes. Um, They are probably the most artistically distinct character designs in the movie. Because those three characters are recurring characters in every single one of Osama Tezuka's works. They just show up in every, they're in every iteration of Astro Boy, they're in some of the games that he designed characters for, and they're all three in this movie. Well, he that's just a, take, <laughs> he just that's takes a mystery these designs. It's crazy, he takes these designs that already have these established names, keeps the designs, keeps the names, and then, like Mickey Mouse in an old Disney short, just puts them into new roles in new universes. I mean, fair enough. I mean, if you you like a group, you like a group. Yeah, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to give up ham egg either. <laughs> it's actually kind of bizarre because I didn't know this until doing more research on it. Because I've seen some Astro Boy. I've seen more Speed Racer than I've seen Astro Boy, but I'm not entirely familiar with Osama Tezuka's works, at least not intimately. Mm-hmm. So I did research on this specifically because in the 2001 Metropolis, there's a scene where the Lamp character is assassinated before the president is killed. You know, they're both killed by Skunk. You remember the scene. Yeah. But as he dies, a candle appeared behind his head and then swiftly disappeared. And I was okay. like, what the shit is that? Okay, you and saw that too. Okay, I'm not crazy. <laughs> it's a part of his character. The character of Lamp has a candle that appears behind his head whenever he's expressing, like, severe emotions. I'm not kidding. <laughs> let's get into the analysis i i don't even i don't have a response to that let's just, just let's i'll let you go ahead and have a break so I'll, thank you oh yeah you take a drink for, for uh, what the fuck okay <laughs> anime's weird man okay um i think my first thoughts out of the way is to be blunt in some ways i guess is that in the past you've brought up films for the show that i haven't necessarily understood 
maybe like at first with like at least at first um like especially with m i was like this is a very strange movie but i found it very fascinating in both uh movies cases um and so I was like, okay, yeah. He, he, and then I tend to pick versus I tend to pick the big tent poles, the kind of generic choices. And so I wasn't sure going into this one because, like, you tell me, like, I, I had never seen, or at least if I had seen Metropolis, it's been years, the original. Um, and the thought that there had been an anime remake of it sounded all kinds of weird to me. <laughs> and so going into it, I was like, this is going to be a weird situation. Let me just go ahead and say I apologize because holy shit, you know how to pick a man. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. I try, to, I try to go for the really weird ones, and sometimes, sometimes I think it works, and then other times it's just like I didn't like either of these. So yeah. it's a mixed bag. Yeah, it's like holy, like yeah, because this this one was great. Like in both cases, I, I loved. It. I I realized as I was kind of like midway through the the O one version that this whole situation is basically the polar opposite of ghost in the shell it's it, it, the it ghost of the shell was beloved anime classic is turned into an american like and sorry into um you know a live action remake that completely botches the original message and everything and this one was a an anime remake into that has its own message it, like its own forms of the same message that is done brilliantly and vibrantly and chaotically. And I loved every second of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear. Yeah. I, I, I was, that was fantastic. I was, I was kind of gripped. I, and I know like, I'm sure one of the things that just got me immediately was the damn soundtrack. Cause like one way to get me, like you start playing like some brass and some big band or well, not maybe not some big band, but like some straight up, like, old school american jazz i will be your bitch i'm just saying like i just i got into it and they started playing it and everything i was just like oh no i'm doomed <laughs> it's just... i um a lot of the songs were really good in the 2001 uh anime version really catchy yep there's <clears throat> there's one in particular that shows up uh during the big explosion like 20 minutes into the movie it doesn't have any dialogue it's like a background track yeah. And holy hell, if I'm not going to pull that and try try to pull that and use that as the intro music for the plot, like taking us into the plot synopsis, because it is crazy beats. Oh, yeah. Like, While I that think thing I is scuttling one. across the ground, it's like... It's awesome. Like, I, like, the Japanese know how to fucking, A, make their own jazz, and B, pick jazz songs. Because, like, there, there's some connoisseurs. Like, there's that, and, like, you know, everyone knows the Cowboy Bebop opening. Oh, yeah, like, Tank is great. Yeah, just because, like, my God, like, the kind of sax solos I got going on, it could raise the dead. It's just, it's, it's fantastic. And just, it lends itself to the whole theme of the movie. It's just, God, I love it. And obviously, like, you know, and I'll, and to go back onto the 27 version, because obviously still a masterpiece, it's Fritz Lang, for God's sake, and it's Metropolis, the progenitor of, like, a solid half of all modern sci-fi, um, at least movies. It's like it's giant sweeping score and being able to make you feel truly tiny in this Titanic world and everything. It's just, oh, it's just two very fun movies. Well, I mean, not fun, but good. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. So, 
I'm just it, it it this is going to be a just a sloppy makeout session for me for both these movies. <laughs> it's just uh, it's just it's it's a it's a good one. It's a good one. <laughs> it, it's it's actually uh fun because I came across this one by happenstance because I was looking up just varied lists of different remakes that you didn't know and I was like, "Oh, that was that's a remake of like a 1970s Italian film. That's interesting." And I keep oh, yeah. notes, notes a lot of this stuff, not because I want to do foreign film after foreign film, because I like variety, but I don't know, put them in the back of my mind and might access them later. Um, but this one was really interesting because the list I saw was like, the 2001 Metropolis is a remake of the 1927 Metropolis, but barely. And I was like, hmm, what, what do you mean by that? And I looked into it and it's like, okay, so here's like a short 30 second history of the movie. Osama yeah. Tezuka made a manga called Metropolis in the 70s, I think, based off of Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Though he had never seen the movie, just, like, got a brief idea of the themes of it, and that he liked the name. He didn't even watch it before he made this manga based on it. So the plots are entirely different. And then yeah. <laughs> when they adapted the manga for the movie 30 years later the people that took the manga, they changed the story to incorporate plot elements from the 27 film while still holding true to the manga. So, like, the, the manga and the 2001 adaptation have different plots, too. It's Jesus. like a... It, there's, like, a weird middleman in there that's yeah, like trying cutting, to ruin everything. Yeah, this is like cutting the rings to a tree and finding them being, like, squiggled. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> yes, yeah, like, this doesn't make any sense. It's like, why are they crossing over? <laughs> but yeah, like, had they not done what they did with the 2001 version and just strictly adhered to the manga, I don't know that we could have even covered this on the show. Because from what I've seen of the manga, it it's like, in name and the fact that there's a city called Metropolis, those are the similarities. Yeah, the pretty end. much. So we wouldn't have even been able to do this. Yeah. I mean, like, you know. It, it we still technically could have it just wouldn't have been great for comparison <laughs> right <laughs> although it would have been kind of cool to see like the cultural differences like you know the idea of german metropolis versus japanese metropolis right so, german metropolis is you know very much influenced by the at least at the time burgeoning modern workforce and the idea of not necessarily new idea of, you know, the truly slave-like conditions that modern workers have to go through. And then the Japanese one is basically just like, what if an American city were even crazier? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because, like, it, it does seem to clearly be emulating at least some form of American city. Um, or at least, I should say, Metropolis is meant to be set in America in the uh, 01 version. Mm -hmm. Which... I, I can't complain about it. It's it's it it's cool seeing America translated through Japanese eye without it just being like, you know, um, just like blatantly insulting. Right. It, it it's kind of strange too. Like I didn't even pick up on the fact that it was taking place in America until mm -hmm. way later in the movie when they identify Shinsaku as a Japanese detective. Yep. Even with these English signs everywhere, I didn't pick up on it because if you have ever watched anime, there will be signs for stores that'll just be like Pacific in English text. And you'll be like, oh, OK, yeah. so I, it didn't even phase me. But that was interesting, especially when I picked up on that. I just assumed up until that point that it was 
a future version of Japan. Yeah. I think, and that is kind of interesting to see like how those differences have come along. It's like the 27 one, I don't think Metropolis is established to be in any one region in particular. I think it's just meant to be like kind of the Omni city, um, which I actually still really like the idea that it actually does kind of, you can see like various elements of American architecture, German architecture, English architecture, all integrated in into this truly colossal scaling which by the way the over like the over dang it the sweeping shots of the city like the models and everything that they have for it even now are stunning i I wish i had seen this when i was a little kid i would have lost my mind oh yeah um the murnau is strong yeah in the 27 version yeah (laughs) so it's it's just it's it's so it's it's just it's weird to see just you know the kind of interpretation that was gotten just from the gist of the idea and probably the poster, which I'm sure I've mentioned it before that I had always wanted to watch Metropolis simply because I saw the poster one time in a movie store and I was like, I want that. It looks like C-3PO, but cool. (laughs) (laughs) With the machine man, like in the bottom corner and then the towers of the, the the skyline behind it. Yep. Yep. It's very, it's very powerful. Yeah. It very, I think it that aesthetic alone set me on my way into like, you know, steampunk love, ray punk and everything. Just that very neo-futurist sort of aesthetic, which I still had never even seen the movie. I got inspired by the one poster, which that just kind of goes to show the kind of style Lang has, honestly. Right. And it was actually kind of interesting for me because, I mean, Murnau is all over that German expressionism stuff. Yeah. Um, so I'm sort of familiar with that. The most well-known probably is Nosferatu or the of cabinet course. of Dr. Caligari. But um, so when his name popped up, I didn't know he was involved. So I was looking out for his touches and I was like, well, the scenery here is really impeccable. And the, the way the towers are designed and these sliding doors, the designs on them, it's really unique. But mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not getting Murnau from this. And then when it cuts to Rotvang's like mud hut with no windows and it's like twisted, I'm like, oh, that's Murnau. Yep, there it is. <laughs> he snuck it in there. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm pretty sure just Rotvang was just Nosferatu, but a human. <laughs> he kind of reminded me of, uh, uh, of course. Now uh, I fail on classic literature uh, in Bram Stoker's Dracula, who he oh. uh, hypnotizes. Uh, what is that character's name? Oh, uh, the, like the main character? No, he hypnotizes into doing his bidding, and it's like a little Igor man. I can't oh, remember what I, his name is. I can't remember at all. Starts with an R. Oh, well. Um, so he reminded mm-hmm. me of that. So I was also getting vibes, like those type of vibes too. But yeah, I can see I can see some Nosferatu. Yeah, pretty much, just, pretty much all the scenes in the lab. I'd almost, heck, maybe, I think the machine man actually would be a better... Uh, comparison to Nosferatu. <laughs> oh just yeah, the, stalking just by its attitude. Yeah, that's just... that's fair. Renfield. Yeah, just love some comparisons. <laughs> <laughs> so Renfield is the character I was thinking of. Oh, okay, um, cool. Yes. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry if I'm a little disorganized. I'm just at this point. I really am just heaping praises on, and I'm trying to get to some more analytical bits. Uh, I can actually bring in some analytics. Um, so go right ahead. With the 1927 version, 
I love the design and the set piece and just the, the scope of it. I think it's very visually appealing and I like watching it. The story yeah. I'm not a huge fan of, and it's actually kind of funny because I went back and there are these records and archives of people reviewing the film from back when it came out. And they all marveled at the set pieces and how it looked, but they're like, this is a really naive story. And it's like, hey, it wraps up, <laughs> it wraps up too sweetly. There's some contrivances, but those eventually got swept under the rug and now it's upheld as this great masterpiece. And watching it, uh, plot-wise, I kind of agree with those reviews. Yeah, I was going to say, like, and I, I kind of briefly touched on it before, but this is a relatively old hat kind of story like i mean since the 1890s or earlier the idea of you know the truly borderline satanic conditions that workers have to go through it's like yeah that's been touched on i think people know to a degree and while seeing lang touch on it was cool i was also just like this is this is really basic (laughs) like this is it really this is basically just you know our equivalent of the dances with wolves, like the German equivalent, 1927 German equivalent of the whole dances with wolves thing, where it's, oh, the great enlightened white man comes to help the savages kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's like, is this dances with wolves or Avatar or Pocahontas or... Yeah. But it, the, ex- what are we doing? Except, like, just replace the American West with, you know, the ger- just the German industrial sector. <laughs> yes. Which, like, makes sense. Which, like, at the same time, it's kind of hard to necessarily put hard criticism on it because like you have to take into account the context that lying was coming from <laughs> as we've talked about in the M uh, review that, you know, this was out in 1927, a particular party was getting popular at the time. Yes. <laughs> Which fun <laughs> fact I actually learned uh, Fritz Lang's wife actually was an ardent supporter of the Nazi party early on. No. It's like that's that's gotta <laughs> that's gotta like I have hard enough like relationship issues sometimes because like I'm an introvert and my girlfriend's an extrovert. How the fuck does that go? <laughs> I I didn't want to like, hear that. <laughs> it's like, hey honey, you know that party that you're really into that basically wants me and all of my relatives to die as they believe must to be monsters? That's kind of putting a strain on things. <laughs> honey, I dropped by the office the other day and Adolf had a wonderful portrait. I think you could use him as like a set dresser in one of your movies. Uh, oh, I'm too busy. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll let him know. Oh, no. I hope he takes it well. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> in, in 1927, when he was already on the rise. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's actually, it was actually kind of freaky, just like another fun fact for it. But, um, well, maybe not fun fact, but literally both Adolf, like both Hitler and Goebbels approached, like most of the inner circle of the Nazi party, in fact, really loved Metropolis and in many ways found it comparable to their own ideals, which is like, okay, that's scary. Um, (laughs) Because it's like, I'm pretty sure they looked at the early scenes with the workers marching in line in the very particular outfits, and they were like, oh, we want that, which is like completely missing the point of the movie. Um, Which I love the idea that the Nazis were just like, just like that really asshole-ish film student guy who took the complete wrong message from things. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, they're just the dick student that you have to deal with. 
I, you um, see, I love this marching scene. It's really quite elegant and impeccable, and I think it creates a good message for the youths of Germany. <laughs> now, in your next film, when you have them march, can you have the arm elevated at a 70-degree angle from its current <laughs> position? Thank you. Yeah, that's that's Goebbels. <laughs> <laughs> Art has Goebbels. Yeah. That's my, new, like... my new character. Oh, God. Jeez. If that becomes a recurring character, I may have to step in. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry. He's already dead. Um, oh, oh, yeah, thank God. <laughs> um, but, like, what I was going to say is that they, I think Goebbels himself actually approached Long, Lang and said that he gets a pass for being of Jewish descent because he, because, quote, Mr. Lang, we decide who is Jewish and who is not. And, like, holy shit, if that's not a line to remember for the modern era, I don't know what the fuck is. Um <laughs> And so, like, that that conversation alone is what made Lang flee to Paris that evening, and then eventually on to America. Right. And and wouldn't you know it, I, <laughs> we really should tackle a more modern German film, <laughs> because every time we do, uh, granted it's only been one other time, but uh, we run into the Nazi party, because Peter Lorre did the same thing. Yep. <laughs> I've got to get out of this country. Yeah. God, the fucking Nazis <laughs> ruin everything. Uh, but, but uh, uh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, like, and and using your Nazi thing as a transition, they they probably saw the beginning with all the marching and, and whatever, but also the ending is remarkable. It's remarkable in how saccharine it is. Yeah. And like, like <laughs> we can be united with one mediator. It's like, well, I will remain to be rich, but maybe I will give you a bit more bread. How about that? And Grot is yeah. like, okay, let's shake hands. I don't know. There's not a lot of... What does... Does Frederson learn anything? He just almost... I guess he... I don't know. I mean, like, <laughs> the most I can think he learned is that, like, he's just was just purely ignorant about the situation. Well, maybe not purely ignorant, but, like was just kind of callous at the beginning but then by the end he was like okay fine like I, i've been kind of a dick let's just let's maybe talk this out some which isn't a great arc i guess rotvang was gonna kill me so like not a whole lot of strong characters in general throughout this to be honest like freighter himself kind of goes like from dewy starry-eyed boy to hero of the proletariat basically just because he got horny for this one lady um and just <laughs> and like maria herself doesn't change a whole lot she's just kind of there and like obviously the obviously the machine man is significant but again it's more mcguffin than actual character um and just you know obviously rotvang is just it's just evil scientist who was then parodied in fucking um dr strangelove um yes like with the whole like the like the mechanical hand and everything i was gonna say yeah the glove i saw it and i thought it was because yep. i was supplementing strange love in my mind i thought his hand was gonna start like raising and he was gonna like slam it down <laughs> but we can't have that level of comedy not yet yeah not yet it's 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 too out of its time yeah we're a bit removed uh, mind fear the proletariat are equals <laughs> <laughs> they can walk in a straight <laughs> line 
or, or Rotvang says that when the, the machine man starts walking around. Mind you, it can walk. <laughs> um, so, My neighbors probably think I'm real weird. <laughs> I guess that's, I mean, I don't, because I like it. I do like it too, even with its sort of the naivete that it has with its storytelling. I don't think it's a bad story. And I mean, it is from 27, like, yeah, I don't know. It's like reading the tortoise and the hare and being like, well, babies know this lesson. Like, what am right. I going to learn from this? I don't know. Stories over time get overtold a lot. But I mean, that one, I, it was even based on a on a book as yeah. well that was telling that sort of story. So I, I give it a pass. It's just when it's an epic of like two plus hours that is oh, God. with character moments that don't. Some some that don't seem to go anywhere, it can become a drag. And and let me tell you, I don't know which version you watched, but I watched the version that is, I'm sure there are multiple, but the first one I found that was available on YouTube for free uh, is the most recent and up-to-date version, which yep. is like 148 minutes. There's only five minutes of original film missing because they found a print in Buenos Aires. Yep, yeah, this. I... I... I yeah. um I rented that on Amazon. I think I got the same one. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. So that's the one I saw, and it's it's funny because whenever, I mean, tell me if this is right. If you had the same version, but whenever a scene comes up that was an original missing scene, it's it's got like a black frame around it, and it's a bit fuzzier so that it, they don't yeah. ruin the aspect ratio. Yep. Um, and those scenes don't add like nearly anything i i wasn't expecting full like five minute deleted scenes or anything but it just goes to show you how much time is spent on things that ultimately don't matter the one thing that i will say that i can think of that i like the fact that it was in the movie was near the end when uh they they go to uh the people that the workers that were starting the riot and they're like your children they're fine and then they go and they console their children and they're on the ground hugging and they're happy. Like all of that was this weird black framed wiry cut, which leads me to believe that all of the reconciliation between workers and their children was just missing for a very long time. And it just went from your children, they were, they're saved to Frederson on the ground upset. I mean, yeah, I, we, I, I feel like we've seen hard cuts like that before in some movies where it's just like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, forget about it. So I, I'm glad that that was there, but I can't think of anything else that really added. Yeah, and another another fact that I thought was just kind of funny, if a little dark, um, is that apparently due to the fact that Germany was obviously at the time through doing going through such economic woes, when they put out the casting call to get like 500 like starving looking children, it was really easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Yeah. It's becoming a very depressing episode. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was a specific point on the trivia list. I was like, okay, that's okay. <laughs> uh, uh, I guess some, some more personal trivia to the show. It's in, mm-hmm. I guess you can consider this a tangent, but we were just talking about it. Uh, this is the this is the first film that we've covered on the show in a long time that has such a varied release history. I think the last one that we touched was the second episode with Blade Runner. Oh yeah, so I, I like, forgot about that. Yeah, there have been like nine print different prints of this movie, all with different runtimes. The shortest I saw was like fifty minutes. I'm like, what did you remove? <laughs> 
they removed all the bits in the beginning with like the garden where the girls has their tits out and everything. Yeah, and they're they're playing around the fountain and splashing each other for like two otherwise, minutes. Otherwise known as the American cut. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nope, nope, gotta remove that. Titties? No. I was a little shocked until I remembered it wasn't like under USA code. When that yeah. woman r- ran by with just pasties on, I was like, "Oh my!" Yeah. <laughs> so, and plus, you know, German film, like European films, are allowed to do more because you know they're just. I found that with older countries, there's not a whole lot more taboo around that shit. Where they're just like, "This is just the human body. Let's just chill out." Right, but we do have those codes because we're the land of the free. <laughs> um. <laughs> but um. But kind of going back to, unless you got another point, I was going to go back into the oh, one version for another point I had. Oh, that's, no, that's fine. I'd just be rambling. It's, it's, okay. But, um, kind of the point that we were talking about where the plot of the, of the original was, you know, kind of steeped in its own naivete. I really, like, thinking back on it, the plot was pretty much the same level of kind of non-committal, oh, us versus them kind of deal like the proletariat versus the upper earners, which didn't really end up going anywhere that all that much. So why the heck did I enjoy the story so much more in the one version? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I genuinely am trying to think over it. Cause like, is it that the characters had better arcs? It's like, no, not really. They were all still kind of the same. Kenichi, especially he was pretty much the same starry eyed boy from beginning to end. Um, I- yeah, I think I like it more because it is that base level. Like, there's the revolution that rise up against this power. So, I mean, there is that base level story, but there's another level on top of it with, you know, it, it's it's as if Maria, the Maria in the in uh, Metropolis 1927, uh, there was never any crisis. That, that character just existed for malevolence and to do Rotbang's bidding, or Frederson's yeah. bidding. However you look at it, it's primarily Rotbang's. But, um, so she doesn't go through an arc, but there's also a sort of arc, kind of, in mm-hmm. the anime adaptation with that robot. Like, there's an actual personality put onto it, so I think that's another layer, even though it's a shallow one. And yeah. then, even though I wouldn't call the movie a film noir, uh... The, the character of Shinsaku brings a lot of noir elements into it because he is a private detective. So there's sort of three different things the movie has going for it, I think. Yeah, it's very it's very dynamic when you get right down to it, which I think I think was the big missing detail, which I can it just kind of opens up the idea that you know, again, not exactly a new city, a, a new city, a new story, but the idea that, you know, a story is very as much about the city you're within as it is the people that are you're following, and it definitely felt like the Metropolis in the O one was very much alive. Just you know, just seeing all the different layers and seeing like how people interact in this otherwise very nice city. Like even what would be considered the poorer districts in the underground were well kept and everything. So it was pretty much just like you know more, maybe like close to a shanty town in that kind of case, but still nice. And so just seeing how it actually kind of played off of itself just the gorgeous visuals from everywhere from the lower downs into the sewers and the machine works to the upper areas around the ziggurat it's just stunning to watch i think that was the main one that kept me going i was like i want to see where we're going next (laughs) right 
And some people would probably be against this. I'm definitely for it if you do it right. But um, they kind of have those noir elements separated stylistically from the rest of the movie, too. Because you'll have a lot of these scenes where it's like characters talking, hard cut to another setting, and now they're in... uh, uh, they're in this room talking, whatever. Tima is writing on the wall now. Uh, it's snowing. But whenever it goes to a noir element with Shinsaku doing detective work, like when he first goes into the exploded lab and Lawton is dying and points out his journal, it goes to his journal and then it's, it's weird because the frame collapses and it's nothing but a black border and then there's a tiny square on the screen highlighting his journal and... A lot of times when Shinsaku is involved and we need to go to another scene, there's an iris that happens instead of just a hard cut. It's really mm-hmm. interesting. They they do different transitions and effects whenever they're dealing with that character and and the activities that he's doing. I did like it, yeah. It, it added a nice, I guess, levity to the situation, which that actually kind of leads me to a complaint, which I'll get to in a second. But okay. um, that I do like that they actually kind of intercut with that because... It, he does add an actual interesting element to the idea. He's kind of the thread we follow as to, like, actually investigating into the story itself. Kenichi and Tima and are kind of the, um, act as the audience surrogates, just kind of embracing this new world, seeing what's going on, truly learning with the world as Tima is naturally learning, kind of learning all the way to the climax where she decides, hey, this shit sucks, I'm going to blow it up. As we've kind of learned, oh, this society is terrible, we don't there's not a whole lot of redeeming values so in many ways you can see like not necessarily relate with her but at the same time kind of seeing a natural conclusion to seeing how you know someone who is literally just born and has the capabilities of a god would react to that right Um, (laughs) and so it's cool seeing it from that end and then but uh shinzaku it's shinzaku uh what's the name of the detective again sorry um, oh, sorry, Shin, Shinsaku, yes, you were right. Okay, cool, I got it right. Um, Shinsaku is the actual analytical part, and is the actual, in many ways, the drive, true driver of the story, besides, you know, shit just happens. Like, you know, you could say that Rock is the driver of the story, because he just does things, but that's not necessarily a great driver. You want someone who's actually figuring stuff out, following stuff along, and that's what Shinsaku comes in for. So it's giving us multiple elements of multiple stories, allowing us to actually follow through in many different ways, which a lot of movies can't really do well, which this one actually did pretty well, with the minor exception in my case that I thought Shinjaku was a bit too goofy. Like, the situations with him, it, he was a bit too much of a fop at times. Just, like, not necessarily, like, messing things up, but it just kind of seemed like the tone would kind of take a pretty hard shift whenever he was on screen, at least kind of bumbling around. Which he doesn't do a whole lot, and by the end, he's definitely kind of more coming to his own as a character. But early on, at least, it's just kind of like, all right, I, I know we're we're figuring stuff out, and he's kind of falling on trying to find Kenichi and, not to his knowledge, uh, Tima. But it just it kind of it just kind of took me out of it at times, and so you yeah. know, there are some anime creators, primarily, I would say, span from the seventies to the nineties, that. They are a big fan of, like, the the overweight male father figure. And he's always yeah. sort of a goofy, uh, baboonish type character. Osama Tezuka loves that character. Um, 
Akira Toriyama really likes that type of character, and you don't see it much in Dragon Ball, but uh, Toriyama's work before Dragon Ball, uh, Dr. Slump, uh, oh. <laughs> the uh, doctor character in is is just he acts like Shinsaku constantly. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's like it's like a trope that they have uh, have over there, or at least had for a long period of time. Right, and I guess I can't really complain too much to a degree to a degree because you know Western movies have just as many tropes, if not more so. I mean, fuck, we have the evil scientist in the nineteen twenty seven version, for God's sake. Uh, yes. We have the sort of femme fatale character with the machine man. It's just, there's a whole, the, 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 there's plenty. It's, it's just, it's weird whenever you notice tropes in other cultures and it, how much it stands out to you. And then you can look back here, you go, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, there are a lot of this character popping up. <laughs> yeah. That being said, though, I still, like I said, he does come into his own by the end of the film. Which I did actually think, I do think actually leads back into just another appraisal of it, is that it is a very, like, not just the locales and everything, but it doesn't do a, what a lot of movies like this would do, where it just takes a really hard shift into the third act where things are super duper dark. It, it does get much darker by the end, but that's, it's kind of earned, because it does still have a lot of dark moments leading up to it, because, you know, the first mo- the first part of the movie involves rock going and blowing up the station or the factory and then it also has rock murdering both robots and people trying to get his way and all these different things and just showing how truly crazy he is and just showing kind of not necessarily the underbelly of the city but kind of showing the kind of dissidence that's building over the course of everything not necessarily showing it super well it's a pretty generic thing of oh we lost our jobs oh we're we don't have a lot of food i'm an idealistic revolutionary let's go do this with little care for anybody else it's like all right that's that's fine it's 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 moving things along at least um but it does it does earn the moments in the end where you know martial law is declared and shinzaku is going full kind of noir mode and figuring things out and rescuing tima and everything basically hacking his way which by the way they don't point out that fucking shinzaku is a apparently a whiz at electric like you know robotics because he was able to figure all this stuff out with like random junk <laughs> yeah lawton's lawton's journal must have been extremely detailed yeah it's like okay and then use this form of transistor such as one you can find is like in a rotary phone <laughs> <laughs> rotary like, phone got it it's like how the fuck <laughs> um but yeah, but then that even that that kind of just shows that oh, this is it. It actually works towards characterization and kind of going against maybe preconceived notions of oh, this guy is actually kind of brilliant and is actually a really good detective. He's kind of bumbled his way into his situations up to this point, but now that he's actually you know got his back to the wall and has to find his nephew, he's getting it done. <laughs> yeah, he needs to he needs to step up and stop being a, a big goofer. Yeah, all this from what is essentially the comic relief character and then leading into, you know, a truly stunning climax. My God. (laughs) I love it. Dude, this is... I don't know if you picked up on it because it's not like I'm some... I don't want to sound like a high and mighty douchebag. Um, It's just I noticed it immediately and I was surprised. But when they're outside, uh, Tima and Kenichi after the explosion, and she's like walking down the steps to get to the injured Kenichi to 
quote-unquote kill him Mm -hmm. um was it soot i don't think it was snowing well it was snowing so it was snow that was on the steps and as she was stepping it was weird because if there was a thick layer of snow and a character was stepping through it you would see the highlights of their feet but Mm -hmm. it wasn't full snow on the steps that she was walking down it was a dusting so when she stepped through them it was like the slightest gray outline of her foot for like like a frame for each Mm -hmm. step as she was walking down them and i was like this is gorgeous like not only from the scenery and from the scale of it all these explosions and wires and everything happening but even the smallest the smallest details and like when when Kenichi's trying to hold on and the cables fraying the intricate way that the wires like wrap around each other as they're like ripping apart yeah the details are what usually get me and it, it was insane the level of yeah. detail in some of those shots yeah that whole climax just with that and with the you know the jazz song playing over the top of it just kind of giving it this almost otherworldly tone to the whole situation and just or just kind of just showing just the tone that it's built up to um it's just it's comparable to you know the greats in animes in anime moments i mean like i compare this to ghost in the shell as far as animation quality and it's just and it's like comparing that to and obviously it's unfair in certain aspects to compare it to the effects of the 27 version because it's the 27 version um right like com- even just comparing that to you know the moment where he hallucinates seeing the um machine turn into a um you know shrine to moloch which fun fact is i think a canaanite deity related to human sacrifice for context mm-hmm. um, um but just how it kind of transitions to that and seeing that whole thing it's I, I was just kind of like, oh, okay, I guess. I mean, I know it's expressionism, and that's kind of the point, but at the same time, yeah, <laughs> um, maybe a little right. heavy-handed there, Lang. <laughs> Which, are... although, although I do gotta like respect Freyer, um, uh, Freighter, sorry, um, for just how he reacts to stress and everything. Because, like, oh, I got, I witnessed an explosion mildly and now i'm freaking out about the things i'm seeing like oh i'm seeing my sort of girlfriend hugging my dad i'm gonna pass out from stress and anxiety it's like it's mood bro seriously like <laughs> <laughs> like like that's like kind of mo- that's like modern reactions i gotta i gotta respect him at least for that <laughs> he's bedridden for like half a day after that yeah it's like my crush kind of screwed with me i'm doomed it's like oh god we've all been there <laughs> Uh, but um it, it's weird because in, in the 27 version some of the the messages they were going for were really heavy-handed especially like um the shrine to moloch when it appears the sacrifices um death and the seven sins like the yeah. statues representing them it's like okay we get it she's this biblical succubus that we're relating her to she's gonna lead them all astray but strangely enough mess heavy-handed messaging aside those are those visuals just the way artistically that ex- they did that through the german expressionism ideal oh yeah they, i think they appealed the most to me compared oh, to yeah. anything else in the movie yeah the scene with like the statues of the sins and the grim reaper statue i thought it was it was a fantastic scene just seeing that it was just like how you know, to to kind of pat myself with my vocabulary very avant-garde with the, the shot. Um, 
I'd say that language was avant-garde. <laughs> Just saying that unironically, saying that phrase unironically sometimes makes me want to punch myself in the teeth. I'm just like, it's been used to death, but I hate having to use it in certain cases because it's like, it's the most appropriate line, I think. Right. No, I, I uh, But, um, but yeah, like when he really gets to strut his stuff with the express, like the truly expressionist moments, it's really when it shines, which it would be sad because like, I'm sure if I saw a purely expressionist piece, I wouldn't be super up with it because I'm like, all right, I do like a genuine plot, but <laughs> but then I see this where they're kind of mixing both, and I just get kind of sad because I'm like, oh yeah, no, it's, I don't really know what I want now. <laughs> <laughs> so, what yeah. am I? It's but, um, yeah. sorry. Uh, I was just gonna ramble. Oh okay, I was gonna say um. Talking about those pieces, the one that strikes me the most, and that I, I think is probably my favorite shot from that movie, uh, the 27 version, is mm -hmm. when the machine man Maria, uh, evil Maria, as I'll call her, is rising. Marivel. <laughs> Marivel, ooh. <laughs> um, is rising out, uh, it, rising up on that pedestal with the different statues beneath her. And it's mirroring that biblical page regarding the succubus that Rotvang was talking about or alluding to. Yeah. Just the structure, the design of the structure as it's rising up and just all of the uh, men gazing at it in awe. I really like that, that just that image oh, yeah. right there. I mean, like, that really just goes to show the kind of stuff that Lang is good with. Because, you know, like I even mentioned before, just with the posters alone they're enough to inspire people to be like to be into this world to be genuinely excited and also disturbed by so many of the things going on it's just it's insane the level of just just detail dripping well, not detail but just style dripping off of his work it's just it's hard to fault it beyond that because you know oh just, yeah that's an imprint that you can't escape from yeah Look at me, I came right back around from saying, like, oh, that scene with the, the shrine was, like, uh, kind of weird, too. Okay, that's, yeah, the scene was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, stylistically, they both have their strong suits stylistically, too, because... Oh, yeah. It's, it's yeah, odd. I can... Sorry. I, I, I was just gonna say, it's like, I can, I'm a sucker for getting lost in a really big cityscape, and anime seems to be really good at doing that. Oh, they definitely are. And uh, another note is kind of strange, that I think is strange, is Osama Tezuka has a range, sort of, of character designs that he pulls from, mm -hmm. that they can be pretty distinct from each other, but looking at them, you can still tell that they're his characters. Yeah. And I think that's a good mark of creating your own style, because, like, we as we were talking about them before, like the characters of Lamp and Ham Egg, are so <laughs> so purely ripped from a Tezuka manga, quite literally, that they have his early style. They have the weird like the weird old Mickey Mouse uh, Fleischer Brothers eyes, where they're mm -hmm. black dots with with triangle wedges taken out of them. Yeah, up against these other characters that have liquid eyes, like the standard anime liquid eyes that are more reminiscent of uh, 90s anime or Osama Tezuka's later character styles. Mm -hmm. But seeing them both to together, you still know it's the same artist and them interacting. Maybe strange 
just looking at it as that, but when you know who the creator is, I don't think it interferes with the flow stylistically at all, even though the characters look so vastly different. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like the dude's kind of created his own little kind of roving cast of characters. Um, not, not, not cast of characters, but rather roving archetypes, just with that one style alone, which I think even transferred into other animes and everything from what little knowledge I have. It's it's cool to see like oh this guy has a distinct eye you know eye texture that means like oh he's maybe a side character but he has a very distinct personality that can be described thusly and yada 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 but I am not a purveyor of anime I would not be able to say anything with any kind of confidence. <laughs> like oh the- no, definitely I I would say that Tori I would say Toriyama Tezuka and uh, Oda who who made One Piece have yeah. influenced so many other creators in that field the, the the characters you can every now and then you can see a character and you're like i think that's a bit reminiscent of this character from blah 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 just mm-hmm. the styles can bleed together so that's i think cool. i think you're right it's cool to see and there might very well and you know again it's kind of like seeing our own it's it's cool experiencing trope characters in another culture which they're so distinctive i i can't i have no idea whether or not these characters are as distinctive to them as our tropes are distinctive to us. Because, like, you know, we'll go into a show or a sitcom or what have you, and a character will say one line or deliver something in one sort of tone, and we immediately have down what their personality is like. I don't know whether or not... I'm sure that's the same with every other culture, but it's weird seeing it on display so vividly, where it's like, wow, this guy is very reminiscent of all these other characters. You're like, oh, yeah. (laughs) right exactly yeah people are alike all over but the nuances will get you yeah we can all tell we can always tell the dopey character because he's like big got a big nose and has a dopey kind of voice yeah it's It's like you can say two lines (laughs) say two lines where you're like i know everything he's about yes pickle duh idiot character it's like kind of going back to like a real I'll, I'll let you get back to it because this is kind of a tangent tangent but okay. like this is kind of going back very far into the you know me watching castlevania um it's kind of interesting seeing the two mix because it actually plays with all of the tropes it's like what you assume to be the hard grizzled character in trevor belmont eventually opens up to be kind of just a you know a softy and it's just like who's just had a really shit upbringing the and the magician lady who you think it's like, oh, this is going to be the kind of damsel in distress type ends up being a straight bamp by the end. It's just, <laughs> and then, you know, Alucard is pretty much exactly what you expect Alucard to be. So he, he's pretty consistent otherwise. Um, of course. But, uh, but yeah, it's just, it's interesting to see how the two, because I'm pretty sure Castlevania is both Japanese and American made. Um, you know, just purely for the fact that it's a main Netflix thing and his main language is English. Um, but it's just, it's interesting to see the, how those things actually play off each other and how much fun you can have with it. Of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> aside oh, over. Oh, I, I mean, mine was kind of an aside too. I just had two asides. Uh, one was, I realized I was mentioning different creators of anime and I was sticking strictly sort of to the, the manga slash anime scene, but I wasn't really focusing on movies. Of course, there are creators like Satoshi Kon and, Miyazaki, of course, that also oh, yeah. influenced that style. They're just more relegated, I would say, to like feature work. 
Yeah. So I, I wasn't thinking of them, even though this is a movie podcast. So oopsie. <laughs> Um, I'm sure I'm sure Miyazaki wouldn't be a huge fan of being compared to other anime artists. He's like, I'm pretty sure on multiple occasions, he's like, modern anime is fucking garbage. <laughs> the funny thing about that quote, because I, I have seen that quote, I believe that was in, I think that was in the mid 2000s that he actually made that quote. Uh-huh. And uh, that was a very dark time for anime because almost all of them were like harem or transformation oh, anime right, and right. I, I just like to think he saw the state of that and he was like this was a horrible mistake yeah i think <laughs> i've seen other interviews with it with him that he actually points out like in a lot of cases like so many of these shows are basically just paper thin excuses for pedophilia <laughs> oh yeah definitely <laughs> especially a lot of those shows in the early well we won't get into it yeah that's a that's a whole big can of worms <laughs> um and the other thing i wanted to bring up this is a much more slight one but uh i mentioned that uh lamp earlier was sort of uh the advisor to the the commander the mayor the president you will and uh skunk was the red coat that was working for duke red i couldn't remember what hammock was i remember now he was sort of the supervisor of zone two that led rock down there and he ends up getting shot by rock Okay. When he's like, don't shoot at the children. What are you, crazy? That's Ham Egg. Okay. So. Well, God rest Ham Egg. You were, a, you were <laughs> one, of the few, one of the few decent people in that city. Of course. Yeah. He wasn't great, but at the same time, it's like he was just doing his job, and he was trying to be like, hey, maybe not shoot children. <laughs> you got you to gotta, you gotta seek out the ones that are, that are important. Yeah. With a, ha- with a name like Ham Egg. Just... <laughs> Uh, another this is kind of tangential too but you watched the you watched the dub version right uh correct okay was atlas the character of atlas distracting to you at all because his voice actor was steve wingnam whatever who's the voice of aladdin and so all i was hearing was aladdin Oh my god, that's where I heard the voice. <laughs> I knew I it was like, something. I, I was like, I can't pay attention to this. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Alright, well, that, that explains it. Um, I just didn't like him in general, just because I thought he was a pretty... Uh, as far as, like, talk about shallow characters, my god. <laughs> I know. Eh, not much going for him. It's just like even even compared to like a lot of the characters, like even in the twenty seven version, people at least have the benefit of they've been through a rough time. It seems like like it genuinely seems like even people in the upper echelon seem like they have stressful lives to a degree. Um, but this guy is just like talking about you know the plight of the working man and the underclass citizens, like just talking about it like a book club meeting or something, and the, with the same facial expressions, the boot. I'm like. And this dude, like, how he casually goes on about talking about, like, shooting Paro. By the way, there's a whole other character we haven't even mentioned in the form of a detective robot who helps out with the investigation in the first half to two-thirds of the film, who's just kind of there, who's meant to just kind of, like, point people, them, point them around the city, and who ends up getting shot as, like, the first casualty of the attempted revolt. Um I can't. I cannot believe this. We literally have not mentioned Paro at all. He's not even in my synopsis notes. It's I completely he, forgot. You get right down to it. He's not really consequential to the thing. He's kind of. He's really just meant to be like a body to throw in the whole thing, just to make it a bit more poignant, I guess. But he doesn't do anything. He doesn't even have a personality. 
you think like in those situations of oh we're introducing this otherwise blank slate robot character he is going to learn to be more human and to be more relatable and thus make us love going to love him more but no the whole time he's completely by the book type i'm like i really like i know it's sad that he got shot but i don't really care <laughs> it's just, just kind of there and the it feels like the atlas character has the exact same situation reaction he's just like he's just kind of casually bringing up it's like yeah, this is just kind of how it gotta go. Just gonna casually point a gun at you, you, a police bot who could absolutely have the right to disarm me right now, but won't do anything. <laughs> um, it's a revolution, man. Get with it. Get hit. But yeah, just like took his sweet time, just pointing on a pulling on a gun and just kind of going, okay, well, let's go and get to the third act. Anyway, <laughs> I I wonder. There's only two possible reasons for the inclusion of Paro that I can think of. One would be, I guess, a straight man for Shinsaku's goofier moments, because as soon as Kenichi's gone, if Paro wasn't there, Shinsaku would be just the straight hard detective. He couldn't really be making jokes to himself. I could see that being a possibility. And I can also potentially see, because when he gets shot and, I mean, he dies, Kenichi and Tima find him, and Tima is sort of like, well, why why is he dead whatever i forget exactly what kenichi says uh he's like this is the price of revolution or that he's not a fan of it he thinks yeah. it's wrong i just don't remember how he puts it um i think i think he said something like they call this revolution or something yeah they call this yeah i think that i think that is actually is exactly what he said but oh um, well there we go <laughs> so it's it, i could also see maybe it being used as the turning point, especially for Kenichi, because he hung out with Paro as opposed to the other robots. But I don't really see that coming into play because there's so much more going on in the movie than just robots are viewed as lesser. There's so there's the revolution and there's the fact that Tima's a robot, but she's also a super powerful robot, and there's Rock's conflict with his father. You don't really see Kenichi reflect on any of that outside of that moment most of his attention is focused focused towards Timo, whether she's a human or a robot or anything yeah and that's something i'm kind of realizing now um but kind of leads me to a very one big point question did kenichi help anything because like think mm. about it assuming <laughs> that he and his uncle did not show up to the city what would have happened is the lab would have blown up and Timo would have survived, but probably almost immediately get caught and destroyed. And as a result, the Ziggurat would have never activated, and at least as they intended, and there wouldn't have been all that death and destruction. But because Kenichi was involved, she survived, got kind of brought along, not really grew that much before she was ultimately destroyed, and a whole lot of, a lot of people died. I guess the best that can be said for that is that Duke Red and his army of scientists fall. I guess that's the most that we can say Kenichi inadvertently led to, because had Rock just found Tima and killed her, like, then yeah. there wouldn't have been the need for the ziggurat going off the explosion or any of that. So I guess that's it. But besides that, like, and even then, that's like a, a domino effect right there. It's not like he actually did anything. It's like a oopsie Jar Jar Binks through the Clone Wars, like, mistake after mistake, he just accidentally led to the climax of the movie. Yeah. yeah I'm realizing more and more, this plot is kind of in 
consequential. <laughs> like bringing up just like you even like even us completely forgetting what in any other movie would be a very significant character being killed off as a you know as the kind of spark point or, or flashpoint for the you know third act. It's like we completely forgot about him because he really he and all the other robots even the fact that team is a robot didn't really serve all that much it's like a poor man's ghost in the shell when you get right down to it which like you know the fact that ghost in the shell exists in the first place means like so many things are going to be affected by it that's it's impossible to see it's like it's like seeing you know sci-fi is affected by the original metropolis (laughs) exactly yeah you can it, it because it takes some of its class values from the original metropolis but a lot of those am I a machine? What's the point of being a machine? What's the difference between a robot and a human are, even if they weren't directly inspired by ghost in the show, which let's face it, it's almost impossible for them not to be. Yeah. It's still so ghost in the show adjacent that it's impossible to think of a project that kind of did it better. Uh But I I guess it's also a little tricky. I mean, they could have handled it in different ways, but it's also a bit trickier because we're dealing with adult characters in Ghost in the Shell as opposed to the girl, the the new robot with no real identity or thought process in Metropolis. So they couldn't handle it the same way, but they could have handled it differently. Yeah, because it really, really only ever seems like they have the whole questioning am i truly human like pretty much it's just like leading up to her the revelation at the very end she's pretty much just it's just naivete pushing her along it's like am i a human or am i a robot and that's not that's not a philosophical question that's a literal am i physically a human being or physically a robot like i do not know (laughs) and then it's her realization at the end that kind of makes her snap and just has like a crisis of person of you know a crisis of personality and so it leads up to the pretty much only case of only significant case of her questioning it is right before she dies of asking truly asking who am I like truly asking like you know what that what would in many cases be considered to be the basis of sentience is being able to self-identify. Um, I I actually think that's kind of funny because in the uh, the snow scene when Rock is discharged and disowned by Red, Rock pretty blatantly points to Tima and it was like it was like you can't let a machine take the throne of the ziggurat and and Tima's like what almost as if she's having a revelation and then she completely forgets about like that entire thread until they are at the ziggurat and in the throne even when rock she goes to see rock because he summons her all she's worried about is Kenichi that's all she's asking about she she's not in like inquiring further about the Hey, what you said earlier, what'd you, what, what what did you mean by that? What was that all yeah. about? I guess the the idea of it is that it was almost sort of in passing and that it didn't really come up again, even for her, like in context of the story. But I guess it kind of makes sense. And the fact that she is still just completely naive. But even then, after the fact, when she gets rescued by... Uh, damn it, I forget the detective again. <laughs> Shinsaku. Shinsaku. Shinsaku, thank you. Uh, when she gets rescued by Shinsaku, and then he straight up a revives her, and then b shows her how to tap into the local like information network by putting her hand on there, and she's able to see the network, and she still doesn't piece it together. <laughs> no, <laughs> she doesn't have the real true revelation until later. Like even right after that scene when the police are coming to the to storm the place, 
um, she's still asking. It's like, am I a human or am I a person? And it's like, Shinzaku, I'm surprised, didn't just go, the, the fuck did you just do, all right? <laughs> like, it's, what do you think you are, girl? Like, I'm sorry, but even without, even if you didn't understand context, you have to understand, that's a new thing. <laughs> it's like, is that a thing? Is that just a thing you think humans can do? <laughs> I mean, like, possibly. She doesn't know anything. <laughs> I guess, but still, like, she's, it's just, at a certain point, I was just like, fucking, what? <laughs> just like, this goes from naivete to just kind of being dumb. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. It's like, it really just, it, there's just so many other redeeming values just for the tone and visuals and everything of the movie that just so much of that, the whole attempt at doing the whole, what is a man, like, what is a man, a miserable pile of memories or some bullshit, I don't know. Um, this is just the Castlevania episode. <laughs> it, it really is. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only line I know from the games. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's just, it's just interesting to think of it, and, you know. I can't hardly say the 27 version's any better. It didn't really seem like it went anywhere with its thing of, oh, the people who work for you shouldn't be treated like complete garbage, only slightly like garbage. (laughs) Right. I think that's actually kind of a unique position that we're in, in that the original and the remake have so many things different between them, like in terms of plot, characters, tone, like, the themes, the themes are probably the closest. The themes in the setting are probably the closest linked threads between the two movies. Yeah, but and sort of, of... T- and sort of Tima and the Machine Man to a degree, like they're right, and, and the kind of plot line to you know use of the rebellion as an excuse to gain more power, sort of deal. But even that, there's some very small mirrors that that are between these films. But it's funny because I would say and I think you might agree with me on this, both of these films are light on character development and story, but really heavy on tone and visuals. Yeah, it's... like, And I've, I've slowly been coming around... In recent years, I've always been the type to be like, a movie is a story, it's supposed to have a good plot. If it doesn't have a good plot, it doesn't have the right to call itself a good movie. I've been coming around in the, year, in the years lately of deciding that may not necessarily be the case because, like, there's a whole bunch of movies that I like that nowadays that don't have a great plot. I mean, like, one of my favorite movies is Mad Max Fury Road, and the basis of that plot is let's run this way. Oh, we ran out of ways to run. Let's run back. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the plot. That's pretty much it. it. But then it gets into the details and everything, the visuals and the true dedication to this whole art. It's like, oh, okay, that's where the quality truly shines the story in the end doesn't necessarily matter that much and i'm trying to be okay with that here too but it's like you don't have the balls to the wall kind of action that you get in like mad max and you know in other movies which i if given a bit of time i'd be able to think of other examples because i know there are others that i like that are light on story um i mean hell fucking i mean hell blade runner's stories all over the place honestly um But I still love it. I still think it's fantastic. Um, but it's just, it's so difficult because it's not even that necessarily there's a lack of story. It's that the story is so basic comparatively because <laughs> it's like not a whole lot happens. Like you say what you want about Fury Road, stuff happens. <laughs> but <laughs> There is action, there's movement, 
Yeah, and it's like action that you know pushes itself into the story. And obviously, every fucking movie is going to have that. Like, oh, there has to be action for a story to occur. But still, it's just it seems like all the highlights of both these movies aren't with actions that lead to the story. It's with the visual moments that come along with it. So right, just, right. And like you know that the, the visuals, the music, it's all the things holding it together. Versus it, it's it's like the comparison I've made before. It's going to the buffet and only getting side dishes. Mm-hmm. You don't. It's like it's like going to Golden Corral. I would not touch that one of the steaks there with my if my life depended on it. But my God, I got some good rolls. Mm-hmm. Like my Nemo. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I. It, yeah, I'm in kind of a weird position with that too. In that they both rank up pretty similarly in my eyes, just because of what I already mentioned earlier about tones and the messaging and the characters, blah, blah, blah. I think that I like Metropolis... The, I can't just say the title. Um, <laughs> I think I like the anime adaptation more because I think... I think it does have more actual action to it. Not by much, but I, I do think there's more movement in the story. I think there's mm-hmm. more beats. The fact that the, the story is a bit more layered... And yeah, yeah, it's inc- it's incredibly dynamic when you get right down to it. It may not yeah. necessarily be wholly cohesive, but it's dynamic. There's there's slightly more things going on, even if the characters that have their own side stories don't make much movement in those. Like Rock, he has his own little side thing about he was an orphan, or after the war, Red found him, adopted him, and he views Red as this all powerful father figure. Even though Duke Red's like, you're not my you're not my actual kid. And so that's sort of his motivation is not only does he want his father figure to have all the power, but he wants his father figure to sort of accept him. Mm -hmm. But that's never followed up upon. Now, there's a lot of story beats with that, and there is a lot of action. That doesn't mean it goes anywhere. Yeah. I think it's actually kind of funny (laughs) to see that Rock was going through this whole story like near coming of age story of attempting to appease this father figure meanwhile red is just like this fucking guy is way too intense i just want him out of my life (laughs) it's like he's he doesn't see this as anything dramatic at all like right at the end when rock goes to blow him up rock's like this is my final true gift to my father versus red is like what the fuck are you doing (laughs) we could get out of this we could escape this. This is a doable situation. Why is this your go-to option? <laughs> you want me to love and support you? How about you don't blow me up, okay? Don't blow me up with you. Why do you need the blaze of glory? I want to live. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just, it's just, uh, fun. it's yeah. just funny to see the differences in those two's story. Because it's just like, it's it's almost redeeming in a way that it's like, it's completely going against the tropes you'd expect. Like, oh, eventually the father will learn to accept him, this boy who he refuses to have as a son, or the boy will learn to have his own identity outside of his father figure. But no, it's just they both have their own thing, and it's just, like, not meshing at all. And so it's actually kind of more realistic. Right. I And I guess in a way that kind of works, especially since they're, they are, the two of them, they are antagonistic characters so i guess they don't need to have their side stories resolved the resolution is their death like clayton in tarzan's running around shooting gorillas he doesn't have some big character arc he he dies because he's the villain 
It's just yeah. it's just that these villains do still have their untimely end and their comeuppance for what they've done and the acts that they've committed, the people that rock shoots, but they also have a bit more depth to them as well to make them, you know, actual characters. Yeah, it's 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 nice to have like some characters with depth every now and again, right? Yeah, you know, I know often it's hard to find, but you know. So I guess that's my stance. I guess I, I like the anime adaptation more because I I think it I think it suffers from the same problems that the twenty seven one does, but it gets a little further. I think it does a bit more with them, even if it still doesn't reach the finish line in a few of those categories. Yeah, it's yeah, it's I I gotta agree for pretty much the same reason. Plus, like I said, they put some kick ass jazz in it. It just it oh, completely yeah. took me. My gosh, just like every single scene, like it just it created this beautiful feeling, even in intense scenes, that it kind of added a needed levity to it. It actually really added to the pace of the action and everything. Or it didn't just feel like, oh, this is super scary and dramatic. It's like, oh, it's scary and dramatic, but it's like, you know, there's some hopeful tones to it. So it's like, okay, we're having some fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, fun we're, time. We're driving a rickshaw down an insane underground city street, down staircases, and nearly getting killed by both collision and being shot at. But hey, there's some fast trumpet going on. This is fun. Yeah, these beats. <laughs> we talked about the soundtrack to the movie a little bit, but... I yeah. guess we don't have to go too in depth with it because uh, trust me, <laughs> I, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna shove out Lang's version either because it had some good sweeping scores, but th- that music is going to be in the show, so yes, they'll get some tastes. I already as soon as I heard the, and I I think you already know what I'm talking about too or alluding to, but as soon as I heard that one number in the 2001 version, I knew what the the outro music to the show was gonna be. Oh, I I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think that that pretty firmly puts our stances on. Oh yeah, definitely. I think we uh we're in agreeance. Agreeance. Yes. Is that? I thought that was a word. Is that not a word? I I don't think so. <laughs> I think on. I think it's we're I... we're in a we're in agreement. That that yeah, that's a word. Yeah, that's that's what the phrase would be. In, in, agreeance is not a. I don't think that. I think it sounds like you're missing mispronouncing ingredients. Well, I'm a new age Bill Shakespeare, so I'm just inventing words left and right. Trust me. <laughs> just got our clockwork orange new speak or our language, whatever going on. I don't know. Oh yeah, me and the Droogs going out to watch some Metropolis. But <laughs> um, so I guess I will tidy this up by saying um. As they, re- they remade it, you can uh, contact us at theyremadeit at gmail.com. Send in suggestions, thoughts, angry messages, whatever. Uh, they remade it at Instagram and at it remade on twitter.com. Those are social media sites. If you didn't know, I just learned about them um, <laughs> and because I'm 80. And uh, you can subscribe, follow, listen, rate, review on any of your podcasting platforms that you may be able to hear this on. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, all sorts of fun, fabulous, whatever. Just try to spread as far as possible because uh, I, I know, you know, iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, those are the most popular of those. But there are people that use Podomatic, you know, yeah, we're so why not put it on Podomatic? 
We're underground, baby. We like ourselves a good hard rating. Oh yeah, we're hip. Yeah, we we got jazz on the brain today. I'm very jazzed up. Um but yeah, watch Cowboy I gotta try to watch Cowboy Bebop after this. Oh yeah. Maybe I should rewatch Cowboy Bebop too. But um nice fun time. So uh I think that's it. Final thoughts? Anything? Uh trying to think i'd say you know what are some good movies to watch if you like something like this but my god it's hard to not think of sci-fis or or dystopias that haven't been inspired by metropolis since then like you know for god's sake it's everything from blade runner to the superman comics yeah that was a direct inspiration for the title of the city and then you know we've already talked about ghost in the shell to death so you know go see that one again yeah yeah you know what uh go listen to our episode on ghost of the shell so uh have fun with that uh the only (laughs) like really the only two i could think of for contemporaries for the 2000s and i'm sure there's plenty but the only ones i could think of were ghost in the shell which we covered in depth on that episode and akira which i was about to say that too (laughs) i talked about in depth as a suggestion on the ghost in the shell episode already so if you want me to suggest it twice May as well. <laughs> All right, that's my suggestion. <laughs> yeah, and the, we mean the original Ghost in the Shell, obviously, not the Scarlett Johansson dog shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just avoid that like the plague, please. Yep. I, I love every opportunity to bash on that movie more. It's just it's it brings a light to my day. Oh, how beautiful and trite, but <laughs> how petty! But, yay! <laughs> what what else can we be, man? <laughs> I want to make we're, a living off of being petty, okay? We're doing a movie podcast about comparing remakes. It's a, It was based on pettiness. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, no, I'm nothing if not. Yeah. Well, as always, I am your petty, petty host, Stuart. And I am Ham Egg Jacob. <laughs> and, you know, from the bottom of my heart... I can't stop loving you. Play us out, Jake. <laughs> I'm playing us out. <laughs> you knew it. You knew it. <laughs>